0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When you see the Parkland High School students leading huge rallies or testifying about gun laws, it can feel like this is a very different moment from Columbine. But students rallied then too. They fought for gun control laws and won. They met with the president. So what's different? Today, we've got an activist from then and one from now to discuss what it means to grapple with the issue of guns and school shootings. Ben Gelt was a senior at East High School in Denver when Columbine happened 19 years ago. And he talks with Rachel Hill, a junior at Columbine, today, who's part of the national Vote for Our Lives campaign to get students to vote for pro-gun control lawmakers this fall.
1: So what was your experience after the Columbine shooting? What was kind of the atmosphere that you were involved in?
2: Right after the shooting like literally the day after they canceled school statewide. So all school was canceled. And there, was, there were a lot of bomb threats and like all kinds of people were calling in threats. So there was a lot of tension. Um, you know, that period right after I got involved like right away in activism. And so the immediate environment afterwards was like very urgent. There was a lot of action. Um, we We wound up like, technically ditching school for a few days to like go around the metro area and like leaflet other high schools to get them to get kids to come to protest the nra and it was it was really tense like a lot of schools didn't want us to be on their campus we got kicked off a bunch of campuses we called pretty much every school in the metro area asking if we could go make announcements they all said no um, you know, there was no social media, if you can fathom that. So we literally had to do it all with phone calls and like showing up places. So it was it was pretty intense.
1: How did you figure out what to do and what was your biggest accomplishment, would you say?
2: The thing that I think that we did that I'm most proud of was we closed the gun show loophole here in Colorado, um, which was really very cool to be part of. We We got to be part of writing the initiative language, part of organizing the petition process because you have to get signatures and all 64 counties all over the state and then also like organizing people to turn out to vote. And it did very well. It passed with like 76% and it only lost in two counties. So that I think um, has stood the test of time also in terms of being something that helps.
1: So did you face a lot of opposition along your journey?
2: Oh yeah. Lots and lots. Um, Lots of opposition here locally. Um, Although that, was not immediate. I mean, the immediate aftermath, even some of the more conservative Congress people were really willing to listen and have dialogue, but not long after, like we went to DC in June with uh, like in June after April of 99. Right. And, uh, there were like a hundred kids from all over Colorado that went and we got to meet with the president, which was amazing, like in the white house and all this like cool stuff. Uh, but then we went to Capitol Hill and, all these Republican congressmen were just like, "Eh," like no, 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 throwing out stuff. So lots of opposition right away.
1: A lot of people are really divided on this issue. How do you think we could maybe come together and make changes?
2: It's really difficult. I think that you have to work to find things that you have in common and help people focus on those things. I think that uh, you know, part of the reason we were able to do the gun show loophole is because we were to close it is because we were able to make this really solid argument to gun owners and people that live in rural parts of the state, that this was not going to impede their ability to legally own a firearm or impede um, anything that they want to do. It simply is about restricting people who aren't supposed to have access. So I think finding those themes and, and, And leveraging them to the max is really the best gambit.
1: So why did you stop being so active around gun control?
2: So when I started doing all this stuff, like right after and then the summer after I graduated high school, I literally sat in my friend's basement and called every single gun control group in America, which were like over 100, like maybe even close to 200. And part of what we were hoping for in the time that we were working is to maybe like whittle that number down so that there was a more cohesive movement. Didn't happen. So, you know, I think after a year and a half, two years of doing that and then saying, okay, I'm going to go back to school, go to college, um, it was hard to continue because there wasn't necessarily like a place or a thing. It was like a hundred things. So it was hard.
1: How do you think we can make sure this movement doesn't die?
2: Um, So I think, again, like this is a good time to really push because there is an election that's coming up and it's amazing how big of a difference. a different representative, or a different legislator, or a different governor, or even a different council person can make uh, with those policies, and it's it's not just the policy side that you get when you change who's in power. You you can really change culture. When we were running around doing this stuff, you know, for one thing, I went to Denver East, so I was in a in the, in the city. And uh you know, there was no, really no resistance from kids. Like nobody was like, Oh, this is dumb or bad, you shouldn't do it. I mean, there were some kids obviously that didn't get it didn't get involved. Are you finding people that are resisting you?
1: Oh yeah. There are a lot of people that are resisting, um especially because of social media, because um on like Twitter or Instagram, they're able to hide their face. So they're able to say things that are really mean or like horrible. And then even in school, um our walkout at Columbine only had 400 out of 1,600 students. And there were a lot of students who were really against it and kept posting that um, if you walked out, you were just a dumb liberal who was, like didn't understand the issues. And I think whichever side people align with, they kind of go to the extreme about issues. And that's just kind of had a big influence. So we have faced a lot of opposition.
2: What are you doing when you encounter somebody like either maybe online, but I'm thinking more like in the hallway at school who's like, I can't believe what you're doing. This is you're you're just doing something terrible. Stop it.
1: I try to just, you know, say my point and be nice about it and hopefully that will get the message across. But I'm I don't want to argue at school because that's a place for learning and a place for love and support. So I try not to do that at school. Um people online yeah. that's kind of different because I mean, like I said, you can hide behind a screen. And so people are a lot more brutal than me.
2: Again, when I think about what you guys are doing now, you know, it, it's sick, right? That this is an opportunity, but it's kind of like the yin and the yang. I don't know how much you've studied Eastern philosophy yet in your young academic career. But, you know, the Chinese famously use the same word for crisis and opportunity. Um, and this to me is, is that embodied, right? And you have this opportunity now with an election to make it into an opportunity. Mm -hmm.
1: I don't think enough people acknowledge kind of what happened, like what you guys did after Columbine, because until now, I hadn't heard a lot of that stuff that you said about kind of like the movements you created. I don't think people realize that change did happen after Columbine, because I've seen a lot of things that have said, Columbine happened 20 years ago, nothing changed, but things did change. Obviously not enough, but- People need to acknowledge that, you know, Columbine did or like Colorado did really change things after Columbine happened.
2: We did. But we also still have had terrible episodes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, to me, the reason why people say nothing changed is because these shootings keep happening.
0: That is Ben Gelt, who became an activist for gun control when the Columbine shooting happened his senior year of high school, 19 years ago this week, he spoke with Rachel Hill, who's a junior at Columbine, leading the effort there to register students to vote for candidates who support gun control. The high-profile activism after-school shootings then and now has been spurred by students, and big numbers of them are working for measures to control guns. But it's worth noting that in the wake of Columbine, Colorado passed eight laws dealing with guns. Only three of them created limits on ownership. One was the measure put before voters to close the gun show loophole, which garnered 67 percent of the vote. The other five laws that ensured gun owners' rights passed in the legislature, including the right to carry a concealed weapon. Colorado Matters continues after a break on CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Mourner. Oil and gas development is a deeply divisive issue in Colorado, especially when it occurs near homes and schools. Yet this state is known nationwide for oil and gas compromise in one area, regulating methane emissions. In 2014, Colorado passed landmark methane rules that other states have copied. So has the federal government. But what have these rules achieved? Today, Inside Energy reporter and CBR News contributor Dan Boyce takes a look in a special report, Invisible Leaks.
3: It's January 6th, 2016, and California Governor Jerry Brown declares a state of emergency. The situation at the northwest L.A. neighborhood of Porter Ranch is just Unrelenting. A
4: massive gas leak from a Southern California gas company.
3: First one month.
4: It's been more than 40 days and counting.
3: Then two months, three, on and on.
1: I had to go to the emergency room.
3: Thousands of families evacuated.
1: I was violently throwing up and had a severe migraine.
3: Due to a blowout from nearby Aliso Canyon. The canyon had started as an oil field in the 1930s, but it was converted to store natural gas underground in the 70s.
1: An examination of state oil and gas records shows, and a state official confirms, that the gas well that failed was being injected in a way that, while legal, can be risky.
3: It takes nearly four months for the Southern California Gas Company to plug the ruptured well— It goes on to be declared the most environmentally destructive natural gas leak in U.S. history, with a larger greenhouse gas impact than the Deepwater Horizon spill. Across the entire country, natural gas production is surging. Industry bills it as a win-win. Take this ad from ConocoPhillips. Abundant. Cleaner burning. Affordable. Affordable an American resource that can invigorate our economy and help meet our energy needs for generations. New technologies have opened vast new gas supplies, creating numerous jobs in Colorado and around the country. Plus, natural gas, it releases less carbon dioxide than coal or oil. The Federal Energy Information Administration reports our natural gas boom is bringing down carbon emissions in the United States more than any other factor. It's hard to imagine America seriously tackling climate change without gas playing a big part. Yet, there's a hitch.
4: The leak has alarmed residents and...
3: Natural gas is a gas. It leaks. The gas company said it discovered a minor leak. It leaks where it's drilled. It leaks where it's stored and piped. The Aliso Canyon blowout is an extreme example for sure. But smaller, less visible leaks are a persistent problem and can pop up anytime and anywhere natural gas is drilled or transported. An unburned, leaking natural gas is made mostly of methane, a powerful greenhouse gas itself. Behind carbon dioxide, it's the most powerful. If not taken seriously, this leaking undermines the promise of natural gas. Environmental groups, government, An industry, they are working to find solutions, or at least they want to look like they are. Today, we're going to explore the problem ourselves. How serious it really is, what regulations are in place, how well they're working, and what technology can do to ensure that as we use more of this so-called cleaner fuel, that it really is cleaner. This is Invisible Leaks, where clean natural gas falls short... I'm Dan Boyce.
4: I like that the atmosphere is something beautiful. I love looking at the sky.
3: That's Gabby Patron.
4: I think it's kind of a mystery to know what's in the air.
3: She's originally from northern France. Normandy.
4: Very small rural community.
3: Growing up, she's good at math and physics and stuff. And for a long time, she doesn't really know where to apply it. Do you sort of remember the situation where you made that decision? Maybe you're kind of flipping through a book of, okay, well, yeah, maybe I could study trees or something. I have the
4: magazine. Do you want to see it? Yes, I do. It's. I've kept it all these years.
3: She pulls from her shelf this French science magazine in a clear plastic sleeve.
4: And it came out in 1996. I was 21.
3: The heading at the top reads, L'atmosphère, or however you say it, I don't know. There's a picture of kites on it. And whatever it was about this magazine... And I was like, wow. ...it inspired her. We're standing in her new office at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration headquarters in Boulder, Colorado... Patrone is a research scientist with NOAA's Global Monitoring Division.
4: So we are going into a flask measurement lab.
3: Every day, these sturdy black plastic suitcases show up at NOAA, containing carefully packaged flasks. In the flasks, air. Air from all over the world. 60 sites
4: from Barrow, Alaska, all the way to
3: South Pole. She says it's the most sophisticated and comprehensive analysis of greenhouse gases done anywhere on Earth, right here in these labs. And from each of these 60 sites, the team here measures about 60 different compounds, like CFCs, the things banned in the 80s because they were eating a hole in the ozone layer, like carbon dioxide and methane. Methane. Over the short term, it traps more heat than carbon dioxide. A lot more.
4: So 34 times more on a 100-year basis and up to 86 times more on a 20-year timescale.
3: Some experts describe it as CO2 on steroids. Remember, what greenhouse gases do is trap heat from the sun in the atmosphere, not allowing it to bounce back into space. Short-term, methane traps more heat. But over time, 20 years, 100 years, the methane breaks down. The trouble is what it breaks down into is carbon dioxide, the worst greenhouse gas. CO2's heat trapping? Less intense than methane's, but it lasts hundreds and hundreds of years longer. Studies from Gabrielle Patrone and her colleagues are partially funded by the National Science Foundation in a project called Air Water Gas. Their studies have shown the fossil fuel industry is putting a lot of methane into the atmosphere, 60% to 110% more than was previously thought. Oil and gas is not the only source of methane. It's also given off by livestock and landfills and more. But the EPA still credits oil and gas as the largest source. And finding out that largest source is much larger than expected, that's a big deal. So what to do about that? Dan Grossman is the national director for state oil and gas programs at the Environmental Defense Fund, or EDF. That wasn't a very good one.
5: How's that? Better? We're using
3: audio from a television interview he did with my colleague Jordan Wurfsbrock. Grossman says we need to be vigilant and ensure policy is being linked to science. To make sure that we are getting reductions of
5: methane emissions, making sure that the solutions that we come up with are cost effective and workable, and that they're durable over the long term.
3: EDF has also spent a lot of money for Patron's team and others to study and better understand methane emissions from the oil and gas sector. And starting a half decade ago, Grossman led the EDF team in a landmark negotiating process in a politically centrist state.
5: So in 2014, Colorado became the first state in the nation to directly regulate methane emissions from the oil and gas sector.
3: These Colorado regulations are important to understand because they've often been held up as the gold standard, not just in Colorado but nationwide, and they're directly relevant to the conversation going on right now at the federal level.
5: The rule is really important and very strong in a couple of respects. One is the leak detection and repair requirement.
3: It requires natural gas companies periodically inspect their equipment for leaks and repair them. In theory, the rule also gives the state resources to make sure that's all happening. The oil and gas industry took part in these negotiations too. See, Companies operating in Colorado realize reducing methane emissions, yeah, it's good for the environment and it's good PR, but if they can really crack this nut, it could be good for business.
5: Keep in mind also that the pollution that they're seeking to keep in the pipes is the product that they sell. So there's an added incentive for them to be doing this. It doesn't mean that it makes money for them, it doesn't. It still costs money. But a lot of that cost is offset by the safe product that they get to then take to market.
6: The governor said several times he wants us to have the cleanest air in the nation, so we work to achieve that goal. My name is Chris Colclasier. I'm the deputy director of the Air Pollution Control Division. And what we do at the Air Division is try to protect the air quality in the state
3: of Colorado. Chris Colclasier's state office administers these methane regulations, which consist mainly of two parts— There's the state's side of things.
6: The Air Pollution Control Division has a team of inspectors that go out to oil and gas facilities
3: as well as any air quality, any source of air emissions in the state. There are about a dozen of these inspectors who drive around with infrared cameras. Well, the state has five cameras to split among those inspectors. So the inspector shows up, usually at random, at a natural gas well or maybe a pipeline.
6: They go out and with the cameras they can see hot gases that are not visible to the naked eye.
3: Through the cameras, you see in black and white. And if you walk up to a leaking gas pipe, you see what looks like a plume of white smoke just floating up into the sky. The inspector can then say to the company, hey, we found a leak. You have a month to fix it or we can fine you. The state does about 2,000 of these inspections a year. Yet since there are at least about 20,000 sites eligible for inspection, that's a pretty small portion. So Then you have the industry's responsibilities. It's standard practice across the country to rely on operator reports. Operator reports. Reports the companies are doing for the state about themselves. Depending on the type of facility, the state regulation says companies need to check it once or twice a year, maybe four times a year, it depends. The company files reports with the state lining out how many leaks it found and how many it's fixed. The regulation has been phased in over the last couple of years, and Coal credits it as a substantial success.
6: Between 2011 and 2017, emissions from the oil and gas sector have fallen substantially, uh, I would
3: say in the range of 75%. It was those infrared camera tests done by state inspectors which found that much smaller percentage of leaking natural gas sites after the rules were enacted. Colorado's rules, this so-called gold standard for regulating methane emissions, the rules have inspired several other states to take similar actions. States like California and Pennsylvania. Then, in 2016... The Obama administration has announced that it will crack down on methane leaks from the oil and gas industry. The U.S. Department of the Interior announces rules largely based on the Colorado regulations for oil and gas operations on federal lands. But, you know, that was then. The Trump administration and congressional Republicans have gotten rid of a lot of environmental rules that were put in place by President Obama. President Trump has directed members of his cabinet to focus on not just American energy independence, but energy dominance. The administration is looking for ways the government can further stimulate the industry, opening up previously off-limits offshore areas for drilling, streamlining application processes, and quickly reversing course on methane emissions rules the administration says are duplicative and unnecessary, trying to get out of the way. This administration isn't much worried about climate change. So the basic argument in favor of strict methane emissions rules, that natural gas is a cleaner fuel as long as methane doesn't leak, that argument just doesn't really hold water with them.
0: You're listening to Invisible Leaks from our colleagues at Inside Energy. When we come back, regulation is only part of bringing methane leaks under control. Again, methane is a powerful greenhouse gas. Another approach... Let researchers and the free market have at it. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The natural gas boom has brought down the cost of energy. It has also created jobs. But gas can leak. And that's a problem when it comes to public safety, when it comes to climate change. Colorado was the first state to regulate methane leaks. And that's one way to stop leaks. Another is, well, let's have reporter Dan Boyce pick up the story.
3: In a five-acre field near Fort Collins, Colorado, sits what looks to be just any other natural gas site. Wellheads, uh, separators, and tanks. Pipes and beige metal barrels, basically. This guy, he's Clay Bell. I'm a research scientist here at the CSU Energy Institute and the METEC Center. The METEC, the Methane Emission Technology Evaluation Center. While it looks and sounds like a natural gas site, the whole point of this place is scientists like Clay Bell can, from their computers, activate little switches which trigger methane leaks of a precise size in precise locations on the site. It's a very controlled testing ground for technologies already in use in oil and gas fields, and new ones too. Every other week or so, a natural gas company will visit to see how accurate their leak detection gear is. And of course, the scientists running the test can tell the company exactly how well they did. Anthony Marchese, he's a mechanical engineering professor at Colorado State University. He's also met me at the MeTech site. In explaining the mission here, he again takes us back to the basics. Natural gas is a cleaner fuel than coal if methane leaks are under control.
5: Only a few percentage of leaks from the entire natural gas supply chain could actually make burning natural gas even worse than
3: coal. Worse than coal. That leak rate where natural gas is generally considered worse than coal over the short term, 2.7%. 2.7. That's not a whole lot. The natural gas leak rate in the U.S. a couple decades ago used to be about double that. Not anymore, though, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Currently, the average national leak rate is below 2%, undeniably cleaner than coal, but that's on average. It doesn't take much for an individual natural gas site to spring a leak and be worse for the climate than burning an equivalent amount of coal. So at Metech, the crew tests how well natural gas companies are doing in finding leaks. And they provide a place to try out new technologies that might detect leaks even better. Professor Anthony Marchese, he says different technologies emphasize different things.
5: There are... A lot of very, very small leaks that one might try to find at a facility. And then the other challenge is uh, there are very large leaks that are intermittent.
3: Those very large leaks have a name. Super emitters. Makes sense, right? These are the big boys. The less than 10% of leaks that produce the majority of methane gas actually leak.
4: A massive gas leak from a Southern California gas company storage well near Porter Ranch has.
3: Aliso Canyon, the huge blowout near the Porter Ranch community in California, that was a super emitter, of course. Some environmental groups criticize Colorado's regulations for not prioritizing super emitters the state inspectors with their infrared cameras, if they don't randomly show up to check a site when one of these big leaks is happening, they miss it. And for the companies inspecting themselves.
6: If you have a facility that, say, has to be inspected once every year, on average, a leak is going to be there six months before you find it.
3: Scott McLaren, he's the head of a company called Apogee Scientific. He has a strategy of his own. Or a product, anyway. But look there, you can see a little methane peak. He's invented a different leak detection system. If the cameras are like eyes, his device is more like a nose. We're pulling air sample in from the front of the vehicle. Strapped to the top of his white SUV, you can see this blue plastic corrugated hose like a vacuum tube.
6: kind of goes through this tubing
3: to the analyzer that's in the back of the car. So driving around, the tube nose is sniffing, and when it catches a whiff of methane or some other hazardous gas, the driver hears this sound, maybe something to check out. So this isn't going to find all of the leaks. In fact, it would probably miss a lot of the smaller ones. McLaren argues, though, this is how you find the super-emitter's fast. Any company vehicle could be outfitted with one of his sniffers. The more the better as far as his business would be concerned, right? So, he's pitching the system to oil and gas companies.
6: Most of them are interested and they kind of like the idea, but they're kind of tied into the regulations that the state require.
3: Companies will do what the regulations require. McLaren's system is not required. The state says that's because it doesn't find exactly where a specific leak is occurring so his technology isn't quite jumping off the shelves. Back at the Metech site outside Fort Collins, Anthony Marchese says companies are trying all kinds of different technologies. Small, low-cost sensors that one might put at a facility, and they might be there 24 hours a day.
5: Uh, others are uh, far-field laser-based technologies that can scan over entire natural gas production regions. Others are drone-based
3: Systems where a. Uh, All in an effort to find a solution effective enough and cheap enough for natural gas producers to deploy everywhere. The company who finds that finds a gold mine. Even if the Trump administration decides not to regulate methane on federal lands, oil and gas production on federal lands is a tiny percentage of the overall industry. The vast majority of natural gas is produced on lands regulated by states. So Colorado's methane rules will still be in place. How much of a burden have they been? What have they actually resulted in so far? Well, the state is doing its inspections, again, inspecting about 10 percent of sites each year. It's a drop in the bucket. Chris Colclasier with the Air Pollution Control Division acknowledges that, but says they're doing what they can.
6: We prioritize the inspections that we do to go to the larger sources first and more often. I think we are able to run an effective program based on the resources that we
3: have. So far, in the three years the methane regulation has been in place, the state has fined or negotiated settlements with companies dozens of times. How big are those fines? Well, it's very difficult to determine because the data the state collects doesn't differentiate between the fines assessed for different air quality violations. One might think this would be an important piece of information for the state, but the data, it's just not there. Then there's the data the companies themselves have been reporting to the state. If you look there, it seems like industry is adapting to the rules effectively.
6: Companies have reported a number of leaks that they found, and they're reporting that they've fixed about 98% of those leaks. So I view that as a success.
3: If you look a little closer at the records, though, you have some companies reporting and fixing thousands of leaks. Meanwhile... Other companies, some with more than 100 sites to inspect, are finding zero leaks. Companies like Patron Development, Stelbar Oil, Coke Exploration, and others. Zero leaks? Talking with experts, that's highly unlikely. Cole says the state does notice when companies submit reports which may be deemed questionable.
6: We'll go back and dig a little deeper. Uh, We can ask companies for follow-up information, and we do that on a pretty regular basis. And so I think there will be a process of back and forth with the companies to ensure that they are consistently measuring and
3: reporting the data. The natural gas industry is very big in Colorado. It's one of the top five producing states. Dan Grossman, with the Environmental Defense Fund, argues the regulation he worked out for state officials to follow is just about as practical as it could get.
5: They can't be everywhere, and so... We really do have to rely on the certifications that the companies make. They have to certify their reporting to the state every year. It needs to be signed off by a high-ranking officer in the organization. And then if they're found to not be in compliance, they're subject to some pretty heavy fines.
3: These could be up to $15,000 a day. But the state has not issued this type of fine to any companies yet for methane leaks. Any way you shake it, if you trust the reports the companies are providing in Colorado, a lot is being accomplished. A lot of leaks are being fixed. And even if it costs them more, there are companies who say this is a good thing to find and fix more methane leaks. But mostly, the industry is trying to have it both ways. Outwardly expressing a concern and a desire to bring emissions down and to incorporate those strategies while at the same time saying, but we don't need government to regulate us. We're taking care of this on our own. Matthew Todd works with the American Petroleum Institute, or API. I spoke with him from Washington, D.C. There's a good story out there. Production has increased in, in the U.S. for both oil and natural gas. And at the same
5: time, you know, emissions across the sector have continued to, to drop, and we want to be able to continue
3: that trend. API has just launched a new initiative called the Environmental Partnership. It's a voluntary program specifically focused on reducing methane leaks. Leaks, which again, make the natural gas industry look not as clean as advertised. Matthew Todd is the program's director.
5: What are the new practices or new technologies that the companies are are implementing uh, on their own or investing in new research? And how can we share that amongst other companies within the industry so that they can learn from one another.
3: The Environmental Partnership launched last December with 26 companies already involved, including major companies like BP, Chevron, and ConocoPhillips. Again, this is a voluntary program, and though companies getting involved say they will do all they can to incorporate these best practices and lower methane emissions as much as possible, there's no real consequence if they don't. Matthew Todd does say the partnership will be releasing annual reports saying how much the companies involved have reduced emissions in total. He does not believe there's any inconsistency in pushing a program like this while API still opposes the federal methane rules. Our
5: approach is to have, you know, smart policies, smart regulations.
3: And as far as the state rules, like those in Colorado, Todd thinks the environmental partnership could be... Complimentary.
5: Oh, boy.
3: Where are we? Gabby Patrone at NOAA in Boulder is bringing up this video on her computer she wants me to see. No, I don't want to be there. I want to be here. Her team took readings of methane emissions on Colorado's front range about six years ago. It was one of the studies they did where emissions they found were much higher than previous estimates. Since then, they haven't had funding to do any updates to that research. But some of her colleagues from the University of Wyoming were driving around in northern Colorado one night in January of this year on another air, water, gas research project. They were measuring for methane, and they'd seen a spike. The next day, Patrone gets in her car to go and try and find it with her monitoring equipment. And it took us
4: maybe 15 minutes to zoom in on this little stretch of pipeline that um, was just leaking, venting natural gas.
3: The video she shows of this part of the pipe, even though natural gas is invisible, it's still just completely obvious that it's leaking from that kind of wavy quality the air has. It was a vent, but certainly not one that's supposed to be leaking all the time.
4: You have homes nearby. There's no fence around the area where we found the leak.
3: They report their finding to the state, and the operator of the pipe gets notified. She goes back about 10 days later. The leak is still there. So then, about a month after that, Patrona and I meet up again to see what's the story, what's the status a
4: good detector is my nose because this is not uh, processed gas.
3: But she notices something right away with her eyes.
4: This little pipe here seems to
3: have moved. The ground, it's clearly been dug up recently and smoothed over again. The pipe still sticks straight out of the ground, topped with a sign warning of the natural gas pipeline, yet it's in a slightly different spot. We don't smell anything.
4: So what I look for is kind of a a plume that would uh, reflect the light differently than the air around. And if there's an emission, it's going to be a moving, uh, you know, little puff of gas. So it should be easy to see. And right now, at least on this one, I don't see anything, which is good.
3: It's fixed. The leak is fixed. It indicates that your message got through.
4: Right, exactly. And which is what we want, right?
3: But also, she points out, it was luck happenstance, really, that the Wyoming researchers were driving by, measuring at that time. Without that, how long would it have taken? This has been Invisible Leaks, where clean natural gas falls short. I'm Dan Boyce with Inside Energy. Invisible Leaks was produced with support from Air Water Gas, a National Science Foundation-funded network of researchers based at the University of Colorado Boulder, striving to get more science into oil and gas policy and regulations. Additional research and a big thanks to Jordan Wurfsbrock. This program was edited by Elisa Barba. Our music is composed by Poddington Bear. For more podcasts and stories about energy, go to InsideEnergy.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Not many people have a mountain named after them, but that honor may be bestowed upon two mountaineers who died on a peak in China. Charlie Fowler and Christine Boscoff lost their lives 11 years ago this month. A bill to name two Colorado peaks after them is pending in the U.S. Senate. It passed unanimously in the House last year. And that's when I spoke with the climber's friend Arlene Burns, She led a search for the pair in 2006. It required round-the-clock detective work. And hi, Arlene. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for being with us. You led a search for them from afar uh, in Telluride, I understand. How did you manage to locate your friends who disappeared in the remote mountains of China or Tibet? I mean, at that point, you really didn't know. Um, How do you begin to do that from afar?
7: Well, it was an interesting effort, and it all started out when um, one of our dear mutual friends, uh, Diva Chihonas, who owns a bookstore there in Telluride, was, uh, it was her birthday, and we were expecting both of them to be back, mm-hmm. and then we realized, hey, you know, they haven't returned yet. So as we started uh, prying and called her company, it turns out they were three weeks late and they had missed their international flight, and no one had heard from them. And it really was, uh, we started something called the Fowler-Boskov Search Committee that was really five dedicated friends on the ground in Telluride. And we realized, you know, first we wanted to hand off information, and we realized there was no one to hand it to. So we became the search engine, and originally we were looking For them in an area the size of California. Wow. So uh, it was, um, we had a group on the ground. We were working with the Chinese uh, police. We were working with the embassy. We were working with Tibetans and um, trying to find, uh, in the end, what was really the most helpful is trying to find where they might have left their luggage before they went into the mountains, assuming they wouldn't have taken everything they owned with them. And that finally became the key. Um, partially probably because we offered a reward for information. Um, And then we found the driver who had dropped them off, and we found monks in a monastery in a very remote region um, uh, that had last seen them. And we think these monks were the last people to have seen them alive.
0: Okay, so that helps you triangulate the area. It surprises me how long they had been missing before, you know, someone sort of sent up a warning flag.
7: Well, I'm, for all of us who travel a lot, and I'm in the same category, um, I, it often happens, when especially when we're off on Himalayan expeditions that last for six weeks or two months and are often extended on one or the other end. I see. Um, and this was the case, uh, Christine had been li- leading a, a climb in the Himalayas, a commercial climb, and after the climb, she and Charlie were we're doing what they love to do, which was climb a, um, a unclimbed peak, and uh, in a remote area. And it was one that Charlie had had his eyes on for many years. So um, it's it's funny because you know if you have a if you have the wife waiting back home or the husband waiting back home, you know you know exactly. But with us as friends, you know it's like, oh, shouldn't they be home by now? And it was really this birthday celebration that sort of triggered us. Going, Well, they are a little bit late, yeah. but um, it's a bit the nature of, of the beast, so
0: to speak. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are remembering Charlie Fowler and Christine Boscoff. Uh, it is quite possible that two peaks in Colorado will be named for them. They died 11 years ago this month on a peak in China. And a bill to indeed name some peaks in Colorado after them has passed the U.S. House unanimously and now awaits approval in the Senate. So eventually they were found. And what what killed them?
7: Well, it was most likely um, a dramatic event, either a Serac collapsing, which is this ice feature on the very top of the mountain that came down or an avalanche or that might have triggered the other. And we did find Charlie on Christmas Day, and um, and in finding Charlie, we knew that Chris was not alive, but uh, the weather, that was full winter in the mountains at that point, so the the search for Chris was postponed till the spring. But at that point, we knew we were not looking for people that were injured and needed help, which yeah. originally in the search, we had no idea if they were injured, if they'd been kidnapped even. We wondered, you know, there was all kinds of speculation. But it really was a miracle that that we were able to find them at 17,000 feet. Um, Charlie's legs were sticking out, uh, out of the snow. So a needle in a haystack, big time. <laughs> Do you think we started looking in an area the size of California?
0: Well, you and other friends and family have memorialized Fowler and Boscoff over the past 11 years, uh, for one thing, by toasting them each year during the Mountain Film Festival that you talked about them being very involved in, and by giving out an award in their names for Best Climbing Film. Uh, This idea of naming peaks for them. I'll say that these are two neighboring peaks on the border of San Miguel and Dolores counties in southwest Colorado, just over 13,000 feet high, and they're currently unnamed. So uh, it's not that they were carrying a name before this. How did did this idea come to you?
7: Well, one of the members of our Fowler-Boskoff search committee who was a a very good friend of charlie's and a fellow climber had been often in the mountains with him it was really his initiation um and this was an area that charlie loved to go in and explore these were peaks that he had climbed before in the decades that he had been in this area which was just really on the neighborhood of telluride and norwood and um and steve did some research in the usgs naming because there were unnamed peaks there and um, was able to kind of go through the process. And when it became on a federal level, that could really include Christine Boscoff as well. So it, it's it, these are peaks that are 13,000-foot peaks. You can actually see them from several places around. And um, it just seemed like not only a great way to honor Charlie and Chris, but also to honor the peaks because these were really uh, among the best of several generations of alpinists and mountaineers, and uh, not only were they incredibly accomplished climbers, but they were role models as humans for so many people all over. So this uh, this is really an exciting. Uh, thing for us. And it's also a miracle that anything can go through Congress and pass unanimously. So it's lovely (laughs) that they can be honored like this as well.
0: I hear your inherent cynicism there. Uh, And as we said, this awaits Senate approval. I imagine that there'll be something of a celebration, maybe in Telluride or Norwood when when this finally passes Congress. Indeed. Yeah. Thanks so much for being with us.
7: Oh, you're welcome. And thank you.
0: Mountaineers Charlie Fowler and Christine Boscoff died 11 years ago, climbing a peak on the border of China and Tibet. A measure to name two Colorado peaks in their honor, as we said, awaits a vote in the U.S. Senate. Their friend Arlene Burns talked with me by phone last year from Mosier, Oregon. that's our show for today. You can follow Colorado Matters on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner, and we are on Facebook at CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us at Colorado Public Radio.